0: Korean American author draws on an ancient oracle to guide his autobiographical novel.
1: When I wrote *Skullwater*, what I did was I would begin uh, each writing session by consulting the I that way, and then you know I would I would cast the hexagram, I would look up the its pictographic uh, counterpart, and then I would reflect on that image before I looked at the text. And what I discovered was the pictogram often released a flood of, on the one hand, memory, but on the other hand, associative connections that we would consider like imagination.
0: That's Heinz Insufenkel. We talk with him about his novel, Skull Water. It's about his youth in Korea as a son of a Korean mother and a German-American father, the trauma of war, and the dizzying transformation of Korea from the old ways to modern life. Then, jellyfish, bugs, and garbage. We talk with marine scientist Stephanie Weir about the importance and the joys of eating ugly. Third of all
2: food is thrown away because it looks ugly. The United States is the only country that doesn't eat jellyfish. So I'm diving deeper. Beautiful. To put future foods to the test. Is an environmental scientist who has dedicated my life to the cause. I can't eat it. Even I want it. Have you had jellyfish before? Can't stop. Can I do it? I'm Stephanie Weir, <laughs> and I'm about to eat. I'm a little nervous about eating tentacles. Mm. Ugly. That's all
0: coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station, and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. up in a military family as the son of a Korean mother and German-American father Heinz Insu Fenkel got both an insider's and an outsider's view of postwar South Korea The insider part came from his closeness to his Korean family especially his big uncle a geomancer and failed scholar who told wonderful stories and legends of old Korea Fenkel also heard tell of the terrible traumas of war Those stories form one thread of the book that takes place in 1950 during the Korean War. The outsider part of Heinz and life in South Korea came from being a mixed-race kid in high school who found his only friends among a group of other mixed-race kids like himself. Their adventures and misadventures form the coming-of-age story that creates the other thread of the book. That follows his character, Insu, in the year 1974. Heinz insu Finkel teaches creative writing and Asian studies at the State University of New York at New Paltz. His previous novel, Memories of My Ghost Brother, was named a Penn Hemingway Award finalist. Heinz insu Finkel, welcome to Writer's Voice.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Skullwater is an autobiographical novel. The protagonist's name is Insu. He is an adolescent in the parts of the book that relate to him because it takes place in two time periods. One is nineteen seventy four and the other is nineteen fifty during the Korean War, and that part focuses on Insu's big uncle. Tell us about Insu first and the crossover between Insu as a fictional character and as autobiography.
1: Well, Insu is obviously based on myself. Part of the reason for this is because my first novel, Memories of My Ghost Brother, uh, was initially a memoir, and um, it was published as, as fiction. When I wrote Skullwater... I was in a awkward position of uh, writing what I thought was going to be a memoir that would have been a sequel to a novel. So that um, problem was sort of ironically resolved when the first excerpt from Skullwater, the uh, Five Arrows chapter, was published by The New Yorker. And the New Yorker editors asked me if they could publish it as fiction because that would allow for trimming the excerpt down and making it work more like a story so since ghost brother had been published as a, a work of fiction i agreed to that and what that permitted was for me to do things with skull water that would otherwise have been constrained by it being a memoir so on the one hand the character is me but on the other hand, the stories that are permitted because it's fiction became a, a bit more, what would you say, f- uh, flexible or, or expansive. But the c- character is very much based on myself. It's not exactly me, but it is some a persona, right? Drawn from my experiences and reflects the kind of inner life that I had at the time.
0: So uh, I like to take from that that many of the events in the book actually did happen to you. Uh,
1: Yes. In fact, the the amount of fictionalizing isn't all that extensive when I think about it. Uh, A lot of it had to do with condensing characters and manipulating time to make the story more possible. Because uh, as you know, uh, real life is much more complicated than fiction.
0: Right. So now tell us about Big Uncle. You dedicate the novel to him as well. He is just a a profoundly fascinating character. He's a geomancer with a gangrenous foot, and I'll ask you about that a little bit later, how he got that foot. But first just tell us about him.
1: Well, he's based on my mother's oldest brother, my mother came from a family of 10 children, and she was the youngest. And um, being the, the oldest child and male in a Korean Confucian family, it was expected that he would take over the, the family farm, or um, the other option would have been to become something like a scholar or a statesman. But he was um, very interesting and and uh, sort of so complex person because he was a failure at all of those things. Um, so he was he was interested in the scholarship, but he, he wasn't somebody who was going to spend years studying to pass some exam to go to college, which would have been the the course in those days. In older times, what would have happened was he would have been the one in the family to study for the national civil exam and then if he had scored high, he would have been appointed as a government official. And that could have um, changed the fate of the whole village. But um, when he was younger, he was said to be much more like a, a ladies' man. I guess in more contemporary terms, they would have said he was a playboy or wanted to be one. So what happened was he sort of squandered his education, but he also didn't want to be a farmer. And yet he pursued some of his interests, which were in things like poetry and literature. And um, what that did was that led him to read certain Chinese classics, and that got him interested in being a geomancer, which is not the sort of thing the oldest you know, child in an agricultural family would have uh, necessarily aspired to do.
0: And what is a geomancer in Korean tradition?
1: A geomancer is somebody who can read the spiritual energy in a landscape. So a geomancer is the sort of person you would consult for finding the auspicious location of a house or a grave. And uh, I guess in some occasions they would also serve the function of what um, in Western tradition would have been, say, a, a water witch, right, a water diviner, but. Because studying geomancy necessitated the ability to, to read in Korean, the term is gi, I guess uh, the term we use is Chinese, chi, like right? The uh, bioenergy. He also had a affinity with uh, spirits, and he performed exorcisms once in a while.
0: And this is very much a theme that's woven into the warp and weft of your book, your novel, Skull Water. You know, the old traditions, the legends, the stories, the practices, the hungry ghosts. And this is taking place in a Korea that's going through really shocking transformation and, and trauma, the trauma of war, which it seems to me really started happening back with the Japanese colonizing Korea, a real disruption in Korean society, of course, then World War II, and then the Korean Civil War. Talk about the juxtaposition between the ancient and the modern, the traditional and the modern, and how you deal with that in this novel.
1: The beginning of the novel is about um, Insu and his uh, mother and younger sister going back to the house he was born in and the people who lived there uh, his friend who lives there kisu uh, kisu's grandmother is still alive and she was she was old enough to have been a person who could remember when korea was still a a kingdom so if you look at korean history the joseon period which uh, is also Sometimes called the Yi Dynasty, it was five hundred years of isolationism. You know, Korea as the Hermit Kingdom. And then, what happened was um, in I think it was as late as eighteen ninety seven. The through Japanese political manipulation, what happened was the the King of Korea declared himself an emperor, thereby taking Korea out from under. The protective umbrella of the empire of china and by 1910 what happened was korea became annexed as a japanese colony and then of course uh, there was the russo-japanese war around that period and then shortly thereafter um, world war ii and then korea was liberated in 1945 from japan and then within another five years, the Korean War started, so between 1950 and 1953. So what happened to the people of my, I guess my would have been my grandparents' generation was they lived through you know, a, a succession of, of terrible national traumas during their lifetime. And then in my mother's generation, um, she would have been a child um, going to Japanese schools um, at the time, because that was the time of the colonial occupation. And um, it was a period when Koreans were required to give up their Korean names and take on Japanese names and also to speak Japanese in public. Uh, the Japanese were in the process of basically uh, undermining and and uh, eventually eliminating Korean culture and identity. So my mother's generation all spoke Japanese. In fact, when I was a child, a lot of words for common everyday things were still Japanese. Then the Korean War uh, was a, a horribly traumatic war. It split the peninsula. It was one of the first modern wars that showed everyone exactly how devastating modern warfare could be because it was so fast the battlefronts moved so rapidly that um you you often didn't know where you were The the civilian population was uh was constantly having to move from place to place um the front could you know change 30 to 40 miles within a a day or sometimes even an afternoon so my mother's generation grew up with that. They were liberated by the Americans, and um, the South Koreans considered General MacArthur um, like a national savior because of the Incheon invasion, which turned the tide of the war. And all of this was resonating. Uh, people remembered starvation and you know, their families being divided by the uh, demilitarized zone. Uh, political factions at each other's throats. Uh, the families were often divided down political lines. And um, all of this was resonating when President Park took over with a military coup. And so in my childhood, this would have been in the late 60s into the 70s, um, Korea was ruled by President Park, who was really like a, a puppet dictator, according to the... the uh, politically liberal Koreans. Um, and all, so all of these things were happening. And of course, now we have to add the, um, the presence of the American military during the era of the Vietnam War and Korea then becoming an ally of the United States and sending troops to, to Vietnam. So all of, all of these things are resonating in the background of the, of the
0: novel. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. I'm talking with Heinz Insu-Fenkel about his autobiographical novel, Skullwater. And within that trauma yet, so much that is traditional remains in this novel. And, you know, I I think of there's a moment in in, uh, Skullwater where Insu is, well, he's just come back. He's remembering coming back to... Korea. He had been in Germany and the United States, or you had been in Germany and the United States because your father was a a German American, was a German who, who joined the American army. And he experiences a shock between the remembered Korea of his dreams, which couldn't be that long ago, and the current reality where modernism has, you know, is just wiping away as many vestiges of the past as it can. And yet the past remains in the stories of the people. So tell us about that, you know, that interplay, that that juxtaposition of the different realities.
1: Yeah, so in the novel, um, Insu has only been away about a year. So that can give you a sense of how rapidly things were changing, because that was the, the period. That would be associated with um, Korea's economic miracle, and what was happening was um, the the infrastructure of the country was really developing at a at an incredible pace. I remember when I was, I guess, around ten, Bucheon, where I lived, didn't have a sewer system, so people were still throwing you know, things like uh, their chamber pots and yeah. you know, emptying kitchen waste and things just right into the alley and um, when it rained all that would would be going down these muddy uh, side streets and we had things like cholera and typhus um, outbreaks every year by 1972 or so what happened was a public sewer system started to be installed along the main roads and then pavements came in uh shanty towns were uh, basically, they were just uh, bulldozed overnight, um, and uh, new buildings went up and made out of sort of cheap sandy brick with uh, with tile uh, facades. And so, nationally, all of this was going on in uh, Korea. This was part of the national what they called the SEMO campaign, the new community movement. Uh, and this was happening in rural areas too, um, but at the same time. The, the national psyche was not changing in any significant way. Um, so, for example, in my family, um, you know, things like furniture and clothing might change, but the, the general family traditions did, did not change. Um, within a couple of years, one of the things I noticed was the, the family life out in the village up in S- Sambongne. And the family life in the town where we lived near the American army base, they were, they were, um, sort of becoming disjunctive because the change in, in lifestyle was being to have uh, cultural resonance. So, you know, we had things like television. Um, but out in the village, um, they still, that, I remember the room pretty vividly because um, we had to go up there once in a while. And the fact the whole family basically slept in a room that was illuminated by a single 20 watt light bulb dangling from the ceiling. And in the evenings after dinner, people would sit around there, um, usually smoking and tell stories, uh, family history, uh, folk tales, uh, things like that. Whereas in, um, in, in Pukong, uh, we would have been sitting around, uh, a small black and white television watching, you know, like a Korean variety show. So it was very interesting to see how, you know, certain, certain family uh, practices remained the same, but the accoutrements of those practices had begun to, to change very distinctly between the, the country and the um, the urban area, but w- one of the the things that um, I remember didn't change much were, were you know were things like uh, how uh, cooking was done or what we did at uh, meal times, even if what we ate was different. And um, one of the things that was very meaningful to me was uh, being around. When the adults would sit around in the evening, you know, sometimes they would be playing cards, you know, sometimes they would be uh, drinking and, um, they would be talking about things that had happened to them. And so some of it would have been gossip, but a lot of it was, was family stories, um, interwoven with, um, with folklore. A couple of my uncles were, were amazingly good storytellers. I I learned a tremendous amount of Korean folklore just by listening to them.
0: Uh, So was one of the stories uh, that your big uncle actually told you was the story about how he got his gangrenous foot?
1: That was not just his story, oddly enough. Um, That was part of the family history. So I'm I'm sure that when he told it, he probably embellished it a bit. But the basic parameters of that story um everybody pretty much believed uh, because the evidence of it was was right there on on his foot with you know the injury that mysteriously wouldn't would not go away. Um and because of that um what happened was he had he had um, sort of lost his um, his inheritance he, he had to sell off a lot of his land to try to treat that uh, injury that would keep coming back it was an infection that would never resolve and he was told again and again that that, that foot should be amput- amputated but he wouldn't do that but um, the way he got that injury according to him was that you know he was coming back from a, a festival one night in a neighboring village and as he was um, coming home through the, the woods he saw what would have been um classified as a, in Korean, it's called a dokebibur. I guess it would be classified as uh, like a, a goblin light. And um, when he followed it, what happened was he um, was then seduced by this beautiful woman who looked like a, a fairy. And, you know, after that episode, he, he woke up, up under a tree. He thought he had been bound to the tree, but it turned out there was just some straw around him. And he had this little injury on his foot and that never healed.
0: What do you make of that story?
1: In Korean folklore, that story is not all that unusual because there's a whole genre of stories about you know, young scholars wandering through the woods and uh, finding a light in the, in the night. Usually it's pouring rain and it's cold and windy and they take shelter and there's a beautiful seductive woman. Who often turns out to be a demon fox, you know, trying to seduce the young scholar and steal his uh, male energy. So that's a whole genre of stories, uh, and his would be a variation of that, but it's a, a little different because when when he described the woman, he described her in terms that would be associated with uh, like uh, a Chinese fairy. He said. Uh, she looked like, you know, somebody from ancient China. So he didn't describe her in the terms that somebody would use for a fox demon in Korean culture. That would have been a more conventional story for him to tell. And so maybe he embellished it to make it sound more authentic. <laughs> but the injury was definitely authentic because nobody could figure that out. You know, Chinese herb doctors, uh, Western physicians, they could not explain why it, this infection would, would often go you know, halfway up to his knee and then recede all the way back down to the top of his foot. And it was a very strange sort of cyclical illness. I mean, my real big uncle uh, suffered with this until he was just short of 80 for, for about 50 years, I think.
0: That's an incredible story. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rihannan. I'm talking with Heinz Ensu Fenkel about his autobiographical novel, Skullwater. And he was also a really skilled reader of the I Ching, and you use the I Ching uh, also to structure your book. So uh, my father was a, a great um, lover of the I Ching, and I inherited his his uh, book of it, in two volumes, which I used to consult. Actually, I find it to be the most useful oracle of any of the oracles, but I can't say that I'm by any means a a really skilled reader of it. Your uncle was. Tell us about the I Ching.
1: So when I saw him using the the I Ching, I didn't know what he was doing because I was a child. In fact, I, I didn't really understand Um, the process he was going through until maybe like, you know, 15 years ago, uh, until my own scholarship in, in Chinese classics sort of, uh, sort of caught up to what I had seen as a a child. Of course, you know, Korea is a country very much influenced by the Chinese classics, right? In fact, the writing system was classical Chinese until the, um, 15th century. And actually, in the late 1490s, King Sejong developed a, a Korean phonetic alphabet. But when it was first introduced, nobody who was respectable would use it because it was considered too easy. It was considered a alphabet suited for children and women. And ironically, it wasn't until the Japanese annexation during the colonial era that Hangul, the national alphabet, was revived as uh, part of national identity. And, you know, in the beginning of the novel, uh, Haomone's son, right, who was uh, killed by the Japanese, was working on the National uh, Korean Dictionary. So uh, my uncle would have studied all the, the five Chinese classics and uh, basically memorized them. Although my guess is that, you know, since he was a failure as a scholar, he hadn't quite Got into memorizing all of those, but he had memorized the the more ancient book that the I Ching comes from, which is called the Yi. and that was the the version of the I Ching that was very clearly used for its oracular function. Right, so it was a practice that arose out of scapulomancy when the sages would uh, would um, ask a you know they perform a ritual and ask a question. And then they would um, take a, a sheep scapula or a turtle shell and then, um, and then uh, take a hot poker and apply it to the, the shell or the bone until it cracked. And then they would read the cracks. And in fact, the, the Chinese writing system sort of came out of the pictograms that were inscribed on these uh, shells and uh, sheep bones, right? So the Zhou yi comes out of that tradition. And it's uh, much simpler than the I Ching. So uh, you would probably be familiar with the, the uh, Wilhelm Bain's uh, translation with the introduction by Carl Jung. Yes. And uh, that version is the I Ching that has the ten wings written by Confucius. So what happened was the Zhou Yi, which was an oracle, was elaborated into the I Ching, taking on more, more philosophical and political um, dimension, and if you read the commentaries on the I Ching, which the Zhou Yi doesn't have, what you'll see is that uh, they direct you towards a sort of Confucian Daoist worldview, whereas the Zhou Yi has the the more poetic verses that are used as the oracle. So uh, to use the Zhou Yi, you have to I think you have to have memorized more of the tradition. The commentaries aren't available to you. Um, and also the way he used it was quite interesting. Um, what he would do is instead of using, you know, coins or yarrow sticks, he had, uh, eight ghost stones. So four black and four white ones. And I remember he had them in his pocket and he would, uh, them out three at a time and that's how we'd get the lines and he would um, sometimes he would scratch the lines in the dirt while he was consulting the right doing doing the the stones Uh, but sometimes he didn't even do that because he had memorized the the whole um, configuration and then after he had a hexagram he would uh, then write the chinese character or it's the name of the hexagram but the chinese character he wrote was in the most ancient form so this would have been like um, you know shang or pre shang pictographic chinese so i thought as a child that he was just you know <laughs> scratching random lines into the dirt which to me looked kind of like he was doing morse code um and then he would Draw what I thought was like a really bad cartoon, like a stick figure or something. Um, because I could tell that he was reading it pictographically. I didn't know those were, those were actually ancient Chinese characters. Um, and then, uh, while he was doing that, he would sort of be chanting the verse under his breath. And these are the Korean readings of the Chinese characters of the Zhou Yi. So I had no idea what he was saying. It sounded like, you know, mumbo jumbo to me. And then uh, he would look at the character and then he would uh, usually like rub rub the image in the dirt out with his foot. And then he would explain like what he had to do or what that meant. Uh, So so I thought that was just some mysterious thing that geomancers all did. And it wasn't until many years later, while I was studying uh, classical Chinese on my own, that I realized this this was some very um, idiosyncratic or unique lost tradition because there's only one, I think there's only one person who uses a pictographic system that I can think of now.
0: But you used it. You use the I Ching to structure your book.
1: Well, yeah, actually, I guess the other person is me. <laughs> I was saying. Uh, because what I did was I, I think I ended up uh, in trying to figure out what he was doing. Um, I sort of retro engineered the pictographic method. So actually, I, I actually have the whole 64 uh, pictograms, um, which I, which I had to look up in Chinese etymological dictionaries. And when I wrote Skullwater, what I did was I would begin uh, each writing session. By consulting the I Ching that way. And then, you know, I would, I would cast the hexagram. I would look up the, its pictographic uh, counterpart. And then I would reflect on that image before I looked at the text. And what I discovered was the pictogram often released a flood of, on the one hand, memory, but on the other hand, associated connections that we would consider like imagination and, um, when I was writing Skullwater in what I thought was the memoir form, I was using the, the joly to enhance my memory, but at the same time, it was causing lots of imagery to occur that sort of pointed me in the direction I should go with those associations. So in the book, uh, one of the things that happens is the past and the future. All sort of dissolved together, and first in big uncle's sections, and then in insus. And it was the the use of the etching that sort of permitted me to do that with the structure of the book. And so the the pictograms I used for the chapters are all at the chapter heads. I I left the structure in the book, so that uh, readers uh, sensitive to that or interested in it would actually see how it was organized.
0: Wow, that's just a wonderful story. And Skull Water is a wonderful story, beautifully written. Heinz Insufenkel, thank you so much for talking with us about this book. I learned so much from it, and it, it was absolutely you know just a wonderful read. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Francesca. After the interview, Heinz Insufenkel and I continued talking about the I Ching and his use of it. He told me this remarkable story.
1: Yeah, and and if you're if you're interested um, in the the pictographic I <laughs> I'm I'm getting these questions. Um, like some of the booksellers are asking, like, uh, could you explain that to us? So I'm actually. Ending up having to write a little manual on how to do it. So,
0: oh, I'd love to see that. Would Would you send that my way? And
1: yeah, so so as soon as I I have the the how to uh, prepared, I'll definitely uh, send it to you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, you'll find it really interesting because um, you know if you're using the traditional I Ching, right? The, the you have the hexagram and the name, um, but. The, the name and the, the Chinese character that, you know, even if you read Chinese, uh, it doesn't actually give much resonance. I mean, the symbolism of the trigrams initially gives you the, the direction. But, uh, what you'll discover is when you look at the old pictographic, um, forms of the names, they really work like, uh, Rorschach. They, they're like ink blots and, um, they're uncanny. And they work instantly. Like you don't even have to read the verse and allow the words to resonate with you. It's an image that, that instantly triggers associations. And as you know, you know, one of the things that happens with the I Ching that lets you know it's working is that it sort of anticipates your hopeful, right? Reading. And it can, it can often kind of throw that in your face. <laughs> And that's one of the the things that's, that's great about it. Uh, I, I guess Jung was, you know, shocked by how it did that. And the pictograms do that much more quickly. And, um, then what you can do is look at the textual reading and that will enhance the pictographic reading. So I, I developed my system over like, you know, I think it took me almost 20 years because I started doing it when I taught, um, great books of Asia at New Paltz. And so I would actually have my class do I readings to demonstrate it to them. And uh, we used the pictographic form. One of the uncanny, it was always correct. And the exception to the rule that proves it was uh, during the uh, Trump election. During that election, we consulted it to see who would become president, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And the reading we got was, it was so shockingly a yes for Trump that everybody just denied it. Because at that time, nobody could believe that Trump would win, right? And uh, so, we, um, so we denied it. And of course, and we came up with a wishful alternate reading. And of course, Trump won. I'll send you the pictographic reading and you'll be, you'll be shocked.
0: That would be great. Well, thank you again. That's amazing, amazing story.
1: Yeah, and, and really, thank you for having me. It was, it was wonderful.
0: Heinz and Sue Fenkel. Go to writersvoice.net for a link to the New Yorker story Five Arrows, which is based on an excerpt from Skullwater. Next up, Eat Ugly. Stay tuned after the break. PSY Gangnam Style. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I am Francesca Riannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like book recommendations and extended interviews. It's estimated that more than 30% of food is wasted globally, and as much as 50% is wasted in the U.S. It comes to about 1.4 billion tons of food worldwide, enough to feed 2 billion people. Each year, the food the U.S. wastes emits as much greenhouse gases as 42 coal-fired power plants. So how to cut down on the waste? One way, according to my guest, Dr. Stephanie Weir, is to, as she calls it, eat ugly. That's the title of a new Discovery Plus series she hosts, The series highlights groundbreaking food pioneers who are already making important and fascinating progress in changing the way we eat, from jellyfish to bugs and more. We caught up with Dr. Weir to ask her about the series. Dr. Stephanie Weir, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you.
2: It's great to be here. So I uh, have been working in conservation for about just over two decades. I spent have spent the majority of my career at the Nature Conservancy, um, recently joined Conservation International as their senior vice president of the Betty and Gordon Moore Center for Science. So I'm a, I'm a scientist, but uh, I have taken that background and applied it to solving real world, world problems around protecting our natural resources. Um, My focus for most of my career has been on oceans, but over the last decade or so, I have expanded into thinking about problems around human health, how we eat, how that impacts the planet, um, how that impacts the health of really important ecosystems that we care um, about and depend on. And now my role is really, um, has taken a turn where I'm leading a group of people that are doing that. And I am making sure we're on the right course rather than getting into the nitty gritty, but this is only, I'm only three months into the job. So hard to say exactly what my work is going to be out about in the next several years. I'm sure many, many, many different things. And so your work as, as it has, uh, as it has evolved, it
0: led you to do this documentary for this new documentary series for Discovery Plus. Um, eat Ugly, I really love this series. It's three episodes. They're they're not really long. They're like about 20 minutes each. Um, let's get right down to it. First of all, why do we have to eat ugly?
2: Yeah, that's yeah, that's let's get down to it. So you know, you, you, you mentioned something that was really important to me and we can talk about the why I did this series because I created it. It was a, a brainchild of mine. Um, it's meant to be very brief and easy to consume for lack of a better, I guess that's a good food pun, right? So this work was really important to me because I just recognize we're all making choices in our daily lives. And many of those choices, we don't really understand the consequences. And in my line of work, it became really clear that our food choices and how we manage our food, you'll note, you know, one of the episodes is called Eat Garbage, which is around how much food we waste, that these kinds of choices we're making have real impacts, right? And so I actually thought it was a really great way to share what's going on with our climate by talking about something that everybody can connect to. So it's really hard to think about. Um, climate change and understand what that means for us and understand how it relates to us or how we can have an impact. And so I wanted to talk about how we eat and eating ugly is one of the most important things we can do for um, mitigating greenhouse gases, reducing, gr- basically reducing our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: And so when you talk about eat ugly, the the episodes are eat jelly as for jellyfish, eat bugs and eat garbage. Um, It all sounds pretty disgusting, but the actual food was really delicious.
2: Indeed, everything I ate was delicious on the show. It was a surprise. These were not things that I typically eat. I am not a bug eater. I do not, I have, I had never had jellyfish before. And, you know, I never tried bugs before, except for probably when I was a little kid. Um, and I had never really thought about this idea of how much food we throw away and the potential to resurrect it, uh, to become something beautiful. I had one of the most beautiful, delicious meals uh, in, um, in Brooklyn from food that was going to be thrown away. So it was, you would have never known that it was a beautiful table. The food was delicious, interesting, um, combinations. And yeah, I would have had no idea. And that group focuses solely on this idea of like addressing food waste and making sure that we are eating everything we grow
0: and these are I mean there are various uh mechanisms for rescuing food from the garbage uh sometimes literally rescuing it. So this was a group that do dumpster diving, they're Freegans, they call themselves in New York City.
2: Yeah. yeah, so I I actually talked to a number of different groups in New York. There's a lot there's a wonderful cast of, you know, diverse human beings in New York City. It's one of the great things about New York City. And um so that group we did I did go with a group that they say they're dumpster divers or freegans. um, And we didn't exactly, we didn't go into any dumpsters. I went, I spent a night with them um, on a Friday night doing what they do. And um, that was really a lot of the garbage that was put out by restaurants and grocery stores. And the rules in New York city, I guess require perhaps, I mean, I'm, I'm, I should probably, I'm probably speaking out of turn because it's been several years since I have, since I actually filmed that bit, but um I think they just they put out their garbage every day and so there's day old bread there's perfectly good um prepared meals there the there's a shot of um people eating donuts you know a donut shop put out all of their donuts onto the street in their in their waste um in just in the trash bags so that was it was kind of mind blowing there's a shot where you see all the food that was collected over about a 2 hour period by this pretty small group Um, that was perfectly good to eat. And they took it to this, you know, one of the parks in in New York and shared it with the community. There, are people from that really benefited from um, that food. So yeah, garbage is not what I expected to be eating at all.
0: That's great. Um, uh, My granddaughter has participated for many years in uh, something called Food Not Bombs in Brooklyn that gets food from, that is would otherwise be thrown away from grocery stores and distributes it to the community. And I'm part of a food rescue effort uh, right out here in East Hampton, New York, picking up food from various places and bringing it to like the senior center and uh, food pantries. So this is, this is a, this is a movement that's growing but let's let's go to the bugs because i think that was the one i was i thought i would be least likely to ever eat a bug but after watching this well i'm game to try it
2: yeah well so there are actually groups out there that are um what they're into entomophagy which is the which is the act of eating bugs entomophagy so um there's like little they have little suppers and gatherings and salons and things, and try things and you know understand that this really isn't that big of a deal. What I learned, and I had a very uh nice entry into the process uh I started with ground cricket powder and it was mixed into like an energy ball, so I didn't see the bug uh it was coated with some you know maple syrup there was maple syrup involved and and chocolate. And so it tasted kind of just like a little energy bar. I didn't really know the difference. So I, you know, I started with that. And then I was lucky enough to go to a Michelin restaurant where the focus is insects in New York city, the black ant, and that's high cuisine, you know, and they were putting, you know, there were ants in my tequila, you know, the tequila salt, there were, there were ants in, or, you know, ants in my, um, was it my guacamole? There were cricket, tacos, you know, it was like a whole thing, but it was extraordinarily delicious food, right? Um so it was very I started getting really comfortable with this. It, it became just like anything else that you would eat that you season it or cook it the way you want. And maybe it's got a crunchy texture or you know, in, in this case, the every bug I ate was just like a crunchy it taste it tasted like eating um like a sunflower seed with the seed on or something like that. Or, or but easier. It was it was easy to eat. Uh, and then I got down, you know, I'm from, I live in North Carolina and I was shocked to see the range of ways they were serving crickets at the Bug Fest, but there were thousands of people lined up to do this. And so I realized that this is actually, you know, a social phenomenon of people feeling brave and trying new things and recognizing it's not such a big deal. Um, the chef I spoke to at the Black Ant talked about, you know, this is what we eat in where he's from in Mexico. And, uh, there's a large portion of the world that actually eats bugs as a regular part of their of their diet. You know, they're very rich in protein, very you know, a health food in some ways, right?
0: Right, organic, free raised. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yes, and a black ant—they are hand collected. It was we were sort of laughing. I, I don't think this made it into the the film that we made, but they hands collect early in the morning. Um, we were just laughing about sort of like local, organic, you know, this whole thing of just, you know, not the the I do go and visit that cricket farm, which is a different, you know, that's more of an industrial operation. Um, but the crickets and black ants and the, all the other beetles and ants, they all come from folks that were out in the fields in, in Oaxaca, Mexico and other parts collecting. So we had a freezer with bags marked ants or beetles or, you know, grasshopper.
0: So there is supposed to be an insect apocalypse that is happening. Would this threaten uh, species?
2: So in this case, um, the what's happening here, especially at the at a mass scale, they're doing this just like we're growing um, cattle or um, you know, bur- you know, chickens, turkeys. The, the work that's going on at Entomo Farms um, in, Me- in, sorry, in Canada is an industrial operation. So it's not impacting any sort of insect population. Um, they're growing the insects fr- from their original source stock. And I don't think there's an issue there, but that's not something that we dove into. So it's a, you know, honestly, it's a really good question that I would love to explore a little bit more.
0: So what are bugs basically replacing here?
2: So in this case, they're replacing they're a protein source. So they're replacing any other protein source that may be less sustainable, um, and then certainly less carbon intensive. So they certainly could be replacing fish. Uh, we are we have a, a serious problem with overfishing globally. So they could be replacing fish. They can also be replacing um, chicken or beef. And you know the beef industry, the beef dairy industry is one of the um, big drivers of greenhouse gas emissions. So they they' raising cattle is very intensive on the land. We, we lose our forests. We you spend a lot of time a lot of um, time and energy raising cattle. And we also use a lot of water raising cattle. So, And then there's, of course, the emissions that occur from raising cattle. So it's a much, much less efficient way of generating a protein source. And we know that it's really important to think about uh, making sure our population globally has access to protein.
0: We're talking with Dr. Stephanie Weir. Uh, she is a conservation scientist and the host of the new Discovery Plus documentary series, Eat Ugly. Now, let's go to jellyfish. Uh, tell us about them. I was surprised to find that the, U- that the U.S. is actually the only country that doesn't eat jellyfish traditionally. Uh, I didn't well. know it was so widespread.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. That was that came from from the fisherman that fishes jellyfish, right? So I would probably want to fact check that, but I think that it's a more commonly consumed food around the world than we realize. You know, we're a bit more squeamish uh in the US about te- you know, texturally squeamish I think is what um April said and when we were dining at the restaurant in in San Francisco um, but uh we've gotten over that with eating sushi, so I think we can certainly get over that um hurdle with jellyfish. I didn't find them texturally problematic at all. But um when you know when Gail said that, you know, he's talking about the markets in which he works and the supply and who he's supplying to. Um, a large supplier uh, recipient of the jellyfish that he catches are is China, but there are also a number of other countries where they're selling to that were surprising to me. And what was also interesting is that this is a kind of salvation
0: for the shrimp industry. Um, What's happening to the shrimp industry and how is this able to basically boost the incomes of, of fishermen who, who are, who were erstwhile shrimp shrimpers?
2: Right. So, well, I'm not an expert on the shrimp industry writ large, but I would say that generally We are experiencing declines in populations of all things that we're fishing or most things that we're fishing in the ocean. Uh, In some places, we're seeing some recovery with good fisheries management, but um, this is a real challenge. There are a lot of boats in the water uh, harvesting fish, so shrimp included. One of the particular problems with shrimp fishing that gets covered more in the eat garbage um, episode is that it is known for having a very high level of bycatch. And that means you're catching a lot of other types of fish besides your target species, which would be shrimp. And then those fish are getting wasted. So that's, you know, that's these, all these stories are sort of intermingled in some way, but in general um, we are, you know, in the case of Georgia, they had experienced a die off because of disease, I believe, um, leading up to the time when we were, um, speaking with those fishermen, but it's, you know, this is a much more viable fishery, honestly. Um, Jellyfish do are, we are seeing changes in jellyfish populations where they're increasing. That's not necessarily a good thing for the ocean ecosystem. Um, So removing jellyfish is, um, you know, a win-win. You're creating an economy, you're feeding people and removing um, jellies from the ocean that are, over natural population size.
0: Yeah, we could use that up here in East Hampton. We have uh, definitely jellyfish have come in uh, in waves. Let's say uh, quite a bit in the last few years. But I think it's because of the warming of the waters.
2: Well, yeah, there's a number of reasons. They call that a, a bloom. So probably doesn't sound like, it's not like a beautiful bloom of a flower, although jellyfish are beautiful animals, but they, as you probably know very well, are very stingy and they can cause lots of problems. But um, yeah, changing temperatures. One of the things jellyfish are, are very resilient and can survive in a lot of different conditions where other species cannot. Many, most species, um, not most, I want to be careful to just overstate things, but many species have a very specific range of temperature or nutrient profile in the water in which they can live and thrive. And jellyfish are just more, you know, they're more versatile. They can live all over the place.
0: Well, it's just really a fascinating series. And I have to say, it's also a lot of fun to watch. So I want to thank you, Dr. Stephanie Weir, for talking with us about Eat Ugly, the new documentary series from Discovery+. Plus. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. I'm glad you found it fun and I hope others will too. I appreciate the time. Meat has the biggest impact on the environment. The meat and dairy industry produces more greenhouse gas emissions than all the world's transport combined. With 8 billion of us on the planet, the fact is we need to find some more efficient foods to eat. How about insect meat?
0: That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Riannon.